In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Just before we get started this week, reminder that we are back in Berlin this Friday night, 2nd of September at Aiden. It's uh, me DJing alongside Closet Yee, Roska and Appleblim playing back-to-back for the first time and Anna Kost is also spinning. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Hope to see some of you down there. We are running on Patreon, so if you feel the need to support the show in a way other than leaving us a review or a rating, which you can do as well. But if you're feeling the need to get involved directly, then patreon.com slash official is the place to do it. There's two tiers and lots of bonus stuff associated with both of them. So yeah, head on over there and get involved. This week on the show, we have none other than Ned Beckett. We've been threatening to get a booking agent on the show for a good long while now and finally managed to do it. So yeah, Ned is the founder and head guy at the Little Big Agency, which features artists on its roster, including Matthew Herbert, Matthew Johnson as well, Ski Mask, and perhaps most notably the Aphex Twin. So we get some insider info into the sometimes seemingly impenetrable world of Aphex Twin on the show this week, which is great. And it's great to have a different perspective on the business. As I said, we've been trying to get this perspective for a little while. In fact, since basically since day one, so quite a long time now. And yeah, this conversation is a little bit different to all the ones we've had so far. So just before we get into it, as I mentioned, if you don't want to be a patron, then do leave us a review or a rating. That's the best way of supporting the show if you don't want to fork out actual money. Join us for Discord hotfrushrecordings.com slash discord if you've got anything to say and follow the Spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes for that so without further delay here is Ned Beckett (laughs) 
Ned Beckett, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, it's nice to be here. Oh, good. Okay, so um, you have the dubious honour of being the first book and agent we've had on the show. I don't know why I said dubious there. Maybe I'm uh, maybe I'm biased, <laughs> exposing some biases <laughs> early on. But yeah, everyone hates book and agents, right? <laughs> Uh, well, I exclude myself from that. Uh, <laughs> Let's just get that on the table. <laughs> um, so to, to kick off, um, I think what would be useful would be to get a little bit of a kind of overview of like where live music is from 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 your perspective. Because we've had, um, obviously we've had artists on the show and we've also had promoters and we've had some different perspectives on you know, obviously coming out of the, uh, the period that shall not be named. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, the various challenges that have, um, that people, you know, people have faced coming out of it and the, and the differences in the, in the market. So I wonder if you could just give us a sort of like top down view of where things are from your perspective at the moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that's the kind of ever present question that we're constantly, uh, asking ourselves as agents uh, is, you know, you could summarize as what the hell is going on. And it's, it's really hard to know at the present time. I mean, two or three years later, you're kind of like, oh, right, that was a trend and that went away and that happened. And I mean, I have to say that that's ever more uh, real, the, the kind of chaos of it after the pandemic. Um because it, you know, just everything changed. So the the patterns and the flows that we were tracking just went out the window. Um, where it is now top down, I mean, it's chaotic. That's a, a word that gets used a lot in the office because it's very different for different artists. Some artists are managing much better than others. Um, so if you're a kind of like in-demand solo act based in Europe, you are probably really busy at the moment and having potentially one of the busiest years of your life because there's lots of rescheduled shows happening. There's lots, every, everything's kind of compressed this year because there's lots of hangover from the last two years. So you've got that happening. Um, but at the same time for some acts like like bands i think it's it's harder than ever before um that's a big generalization but you know if you're a if you're an american band a kind of mid-level american band who is coming to europe to tour and there's five or six of you flying in already the travel costs are like really hard to deal with um you're dealing with tighter kind of contractual elements that that put more pressure and responsibility on the band to to manage their costs and etc cetera, etc cetera. maybe we can get into that later but it's you know that's the kind of behind the scenes boring contractual stuff but also there are so many possibilities of the shows getting cancelled you know for example if one band member gets covid an entire tour can go down um and it, i mean it doesn't even have to be that the you know you would have covid for the the whole month of the tour if you if you have a tour of 30 shows 
and you've got a budget running, the margins are pretty thin for a mid-level band. And if you lose three or four of your shows, you've got a real problem. So we're seeing that as, you know, the other end of the spectrum that's like the hardest to make work. But like I say, at the same time, you've got busy DJs and solo acts who are smashing it, to use the the technical term. And so that gives a flavor of how different it can be. I mean, if if you want to look at kind of like trends within music, it, it kind of, that gets more kind of granular. And it's, I mean, to me, as chaotic as ever. Um, but, that, you know, that would be a starting point for a top-down sure. analysis of what, where it's, what we're doing. Yeah, so... Just on that issue of trends, um, I mean, you mentioned at the top there that there were there's there were certain things which were going on which were like put a stop to by the pandemic. So, is there anything that sort of jumps out as something which is happening now, which maybe wouldn't have done without the those kind of couple of years? And then, and then, was there anything which notable which stopped because of that? Yeah, I mean. <sighs> That's a good question. I don't I don't think there's anything that's particularly happening that wouldn't have happened um if the if the pandemic wasn't there. I mean it's you know it's still the same people trying to make a living from touring. Um you know there's pe- people coming in and people going out um but in that sense I haven't spotted any like wildly new trends like oh my god, you know this thing is now happening like because of the pandemic in terms of in terms of like you know genres and stuff like that but but yeah i mean there's 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 subtle things like i think and we discuss it a lot in the office that i mean it it's what we're trying to do is figure out like well what what's going on in the live market i mean that's what everyone's trying to track at the moment and promoters especially you know like um i mean and i have to <laughs> mentioned that it's even more chaotic because of what's happening post-pandemic, you know, with the Ukrainian war, uh, Russia invasion and cost of living. And so, you know, like that's having an effect on certain bits of the market more than others. So you've got that combined with... So, for example, I would speculate that a chunk of older ticket buyers who... Uh, you know, maybe used to go to concerts once a month and are mid-30s upwards and now uh, not going to concerts once a month and it's more like once every six months. Um, you know, that that's a big kind of, kind of bit, a lot of guesswork, but that's our hunch that things like that have happened. Let me, let me, which, ju- let me jump in there quickly. Yeah, and, go for it. And yeah. say, and ask... I mean, does that then sort of reinforce the kind of wider shift towards like away from smaller venues and towards festivals, would you say? I mean, I'm, I'm taking that as a as an assumption and maybe you, maybe you disagree with that. But um, has that kind of shift towards, you know, a kind of less frequent attendance rate? Do you think that's um, reinforcing that if it indeed exists? Yes, it's I, I think that's what we're kind of waiting to see. I mean, this this summer was a big kind of testing ground for like how everything would work i mean it's the first summer where mostly things are up and running and we're starting to get a feel for 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's there's something in that. Yeah, I think if you are if you're 45 years old and you're going to go out um, once every three months, you're gonna you're gonna want a bang for your buck. So it'll either be your favorite act um, or or something in that region uh, or it'll be it'll be a ticket for a kind of weekend event where you get to see a lot i think there's i think where we're seeing acts struggling is just those those kind of standard midweek you know hard ticket you know you need to pay 25 quid to go and see a band that you kind of like but they're not your favorite band um and it means you need a babysitter maybe and you know all that type of stuff i think <laughs> people are just factoring all that in and being like nah I'll miss that. So, you know, we're seeing some festivals and some events sell out really quick and do really well. And some more niche, like specific hard ticket stuff um, being really hard to sell. But then again, you know, it also depends what a dedicated audience uh, and a, a band have. You know, there's, there's certain bands that are doing incredibly well. And I mean, also... It depends which level you're looking at, because if you go to more like pop level, which is not really my forte, but it seems like some bigger acts are doing incredibly well. And I guess, you know, the the what people are thinking there is like, you know, this is once every two or three years I would get to see my favorite band. I'm buying a ticket, even if it's, you know, 80 quid a ticket. So those kind of bigger stadi- stadium things seem like they're doing well, you know, I keep seeing Coldplay popping up on my feed with like, <laughs> like these huge sold out stadiums. They seem to be doing all right. So like I say, it's chaotic and it'll take a year or two for us to be able to really see, oh, okay. So this area of music world live world did really well. Um, they had a very dedicated audience. They had, a, they had an audience who still had cash, even though energy bills are skyrocketing. Whereas this, this act and these this area suffered you know it's it's tricky to kind of figure out what's going on we're all kind of looking at it i mean you know and some festivals are doing really well and some are not so yeah yeah so there's lots to unpack there i definitely want to discuss the like the cost of living issue as a kind of emerging thing which may play out over quite a long period but just um just to pick up on something you said there about you know that the larger acts and like the amount of, well, the extent to which they dominate the market in terms of like the overall kind of revenue share. Like we talked a bit on the show about how much, well, about the ability of kind of like more niche acts to, to make a living over time. I actually had quite a sort of what turned into quite a deep discussion last week with George Fitzgerald about this. And we were like speculating as to how, or well, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that whilst the the overall kind of revenue pot for live music has has grown like relative to other parts of the music industry that that has been increasingly sort of dominated by certain big acts right I mean like I was been I've been following the um you know what happened with the Bruce Springsteen ticketing algorithm thing I'm not sure if you followed that story but no I didn't um, what was that well Ticketmaster sold a proportion of Springsteen tickets with a in a similar way to um how Uber does its dynamic pricing so right. they had an okay. algorithm de- like calculating the demand and then pricing accordingly 
Um, Jesus. Which is, well, I mean, I, I, I completely like see. Ryanair. <laughs> sure. I mean, I, from one, on, the, on one hand, I completely understand that reaction, but sort of from with my yeah. artist hat on and you know, squarely on, I would sort of be a bit more sympathetic in the sense that, like, you know, to fairly price a ticket, like, you know, the demand yeah. for that ticket is, is difficult to calculate, you know, just by a, by a promoter saying, oh, yeah. I think no, it's going to um, be. Yeah, I've, I've I've seen I've seen stuff like I haven't actually seen it in action. I saw that being debated a lot, of, like a couple of years ago, because because of all this like ticket scalping and reselling. So it's like you know if the if the actual ticket follows that demand, you reduce the kind of kickback for the resellers. I get I t- yeah, I totally get that. Um, so how did it end up? Were they going for like? One or two grand in the end, or something. I, I think, yeah, I think there was some there were some pretty high prices there, <laughs> prices there, and then obviously there was you get some blowback as a result of that from understandably because the headline numbers look bad, right? But my, I mean, my question was going to be in the sort of like electronic side, in the electronic kind of like area of the whole thing, like in your experience, like to what extent does the market get dominated by certain big acts? Cause, cause you've got some big acts on, on the roster, right? So like to what extent do they do- dominate the market? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think live music industry has always been really top heavy. I, you know, when I started out a long time ago, it, it, like it, it would seemed quite like quite quickly. I realized that it's a it's a bit of an inverse pyramid, or is it the other way? Is it a pyramid like where the, the you know the the few at the top really earn most of the, most of the money because of this kind of like headline thing? So you you have very few acts that are in the headliner category, and you have very many festivals that need headliners to sell their tickets. So the you know they're in massive demand. They can only do a certain amount of shows and. Therefore, their fees become huge and take a, a big proportion of of the entire artist budget for a festival. In fact, I think I, I had a look once at a festival. I won't say which one it was, but I just kind of looked at their poster and kind of did a quick calculation of the kind of percentages. And I think, you know, like, you you know, they have three headliners at the top, then they have like six sub-headliners, and then they maybe have eight sub-sub-headliners, and then they have like a hundred smaller acts. And I was like, I reckon, you know, if all those smaller acts are getting about two grand, you know, and then it goes up and up and up and the headliners are getting three, four, 500 grand, you can quite easily see that, uh, you know, like about six or seven of the acts on the bill take 80, 85% of the entire artist budget. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's always seemed like that to me. It's not always like that, but then I think that's also a an effect of the kind of explosion of festival world that just, you know, even 20 years ago, there just weren't so many festivals. That's become a huge part of the live industry where acts can make most of their money um, or, or a lot of their money. And then the the touring economy is is quite different that's much more t- to do with like well how many tickets can you actually sell how much fan base do you have in what are they willing to pay and how broad is that across the world um so that's when you really get to see like what you know how it really works you know the hard ticket versus the festival thing but um 
yeah, I'm kind of going off on one now. No, no, bring, I mean, bring this, me is, back. this is interesting. <laughs> now, this is, uh, this is an interesting point, actually. Um, and I'd be, yeah, I'd be interested to, to get your take on like the, the difference between those two things. Like to what extent are they sort of discreet from each other? So what you've just said about how, you know, you find out how popular a band is by how many tickets they can sell. That's, that's an issue we've talked about on the show before. And it's, it's all sort of similar to streaming numbers, actually, which can be pretty misleading in terms of how popular an act is, right? And there's no, yeah. and there's no hiding from the hard ticket live tour, right? <laughs> there's like, no, you know, there's no, that's, that's, um, yeah, that it's a, you're kind of playing with fire when you, when you really go for it and but it's yeah i mean the the two it's kind of like a symbiotic kind of live parallel universe the hard tickets and the festivals and you you kind of you kind of need to do some hard ticket shows to to really see where you're at otherwise you know you kind of lose track of reality and that, that does happen when acts don't do their own shows and they just do festivals and then they kind of disconnect from their their audience because those festival shows, I mean, they can be great, but it's 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 not the same as playing in front of, you know, two, three thousand of your own fans and it just being all focused on that one act. I mean, that's where the real kind of connection, live connection is. So they kind of interplay with each other and, you know, and festivals won't pay big bucks for acts until they're really sure that they're, you know, they're worth, you know, lots and lots of tickets. So the two go together and i think part of an agent agent's work is is kind of feeling out with you know with the artist and maybe with the manager like when is it the right time to do different types of shows to kind of you know build build a the profile and like reinforce the the connection with the audience and you know do different shows that give the audience a different experience and then do a big festival show where you play in front of a bit much bigger audience, but they're not all your dedicated fans can go amazingly well, can also be kind of a bit distant, you know, if it doesn't go across well. So that's the game really, all that. Yeah. Um, All that stuff. Sure. And um, I definitely want to get into like the, like the role of the of the book and agent in building the career of an artist. Just before we get into that, though, um, just going back to what you were saying about how um, a small number of headliners dominate the budget for a festival. Like, how <laughs> it sort of begs the question: like, how fair is that? Like, because if those if those it's totally he- unfair. Well, well, well okay, but <laughs> well, on one hand, it's totally unfair. Yeah. Like if just just in the in the context of what you've just said about how you have to kind of prove your ticket selling ability to get a good festival booking, yeah. And if if hypothetically those headliners are selling most of the tickets for the festival, mm. then maybe it is fair. Yeah. No. I mean, I've, yeah. I, I, there's no black and white answers to that. I mean, I think on one hand, if if you're a if you're a smaller artist who's trying to break through, it's incredibly unfair because you you know you if you see what those artists are getting compared to what you're getting is yeah, of course it's really unfair. And it's like, well, how how could I ever get there? It's, you know, it all it's almost impossible. Um, on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a big act that can sell twenty thousand, thirty thousand tickets in a city, then if you know if a festival approaches you and said we want you to play here, then the first thought is, well, it's got to be worth my while because I'm quite happy just to do my own show in front of thirty thousand people. So, 
that you know on, from their perspective they're saying you know we can do this this and this like what can you you know provide that's better and then the, you know the discussion from the festival is bigger audience you know bigger crowd bigger promotion bigger production you know like a bigger lineup so lots of stuff going on um a different you know different event so from their side that's very fair like <laughs> You know, it goes both ways, but yeah, I mean, you can get philosophical as much as you want. You know, it's it's kind of how things work in in, in lots of ways. Um, it's also unfair in lots of ways. Um, so yeah, you could talk about that for a good yeah, yeah, couple yeah. of hours. <laughs> okay, going back to uh, what I was what I mentioned before about the the role of the agent, the positive role of the booking agent in an artist's career. Because as we mentioned at the top, like the image of booking agents isn't always the best, but it's pretty unfair because I think one of the most important things that you need as a developing artist is someone with real expertise about how you would develop in the live area, whether you're a DJ or a band or or whatever, you know. Mm. And the role of a, a good agent will provide that and provide something really tangible. So, yeah. Um, so with what you guys do at Little Big, tell me about how you how you approach like the signing of new acts and the kind of building up of new new entrants to the scene, as it were. Well, I mean, it's it's probably worth kind of putting it in context of you know what we like aim to do or you know what how we why we started or why I started little big but why the others you know little big isn't just me there's you know 10 15 other people who make little big what it is um little big we I always approached it as a very artist focused operation that was I think that was the first thing and you know I didn't really realize it at the time because I never worked in a in a big kind of london you know commercial agency. So I I had no idea what agents were doing. I just kind of fell into it because I found myself um, working with artists in that kind of like middle ground between, you know, I found myself in, in between artists and the industry basically. And it, and then I realized, you know, after, after a while I was like, all right, okay. I think this is what agents are doing. Um, But so my starting point was really seeing what the artist was up to, how how they're working, and kind of what they need to to be able to do stuff like gigs, Um, which I think I think is quite a different setting than if you you know if you got if you were like oh I want to be an agent and got a, a a job at an agency and got trained up in a in a big agency I think you'd you'd just have a different kind of uh, entry into it all so so and you know maybe it's interesting to say that what I learned quickly is like what doesn't work like so you know I saw that the artists that I was in touch with didn't feel comfortable with a kind of like very kind of hard business approach of like, you know, this is the market you need to break into. And, you know, this is the revenue we're hoping to generate. You know, it was nothing like that. It it, it was a very, very creative driven um, approach where it is like, you know, here I am in the studio and this is what I'm doing. And, and I'm like, well, here are these people who, who would like you to perform and they want to pay you for it. Like, how's this going to work? And and they're like, well, 
I don't want to think about this, this, and this. And, you know, that's, I see them doing that and that's terrible. And I'm like, okay, well, we can do it like this, you know? And so that, that kind of artist focused approach where you're working quite closely with them, there's not necessarily a manager involved to start with has always, that's, that's little big. That was like how we all operate. Then of course, what happens is that you, you know, you do that for a while and you start to learn more and more about how to build a, a, an artist's career live mainly, but of course it all overlaps. So when you're working with an artist without a manager involved, then lots of what you're doing and thinking about is falls under a more kind of like general artist management kind of thing, but you just don't call it that and you don't build them for that. <laughs> um, as, as we've, as we've progressed as agents and got more experienced and, you know, hopefully know a bit more about what we're doing now after kind of going on 20 years, um, then of course it's a, it's a different thing and it does become more professional and there are managers involved and you are more focused on building a live career. And then, you know, then there's more of a system and there's more of a kind of playbook, but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of context of where, where we're, where our heads are at and where we've got to where we are. So in terms of like how we would sign an act and build them, yeah, there's a, there's a well-trodden path of, you know, these promoters, these events, are a really good starting ground and you know you work closely with promoters who believe in the act who can take them up and up and up and you know it takes a good two or three years usually to 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 build an act up through smaller clubs up through smaller festivals onto bigger stages selling more tickets and um and then you just see where it can go really yeah i definitely takes at least two years in my experience of you know building people through through a label like just yeah in terms of getting getting people interested in you know building a, a following it really does take at least that amount of time absolutely Min- minimum two years from when we, i mean you know sometimes we sign acts that are already busy and successful but i mean signing a new act who's kind of like you know getting 100 200 quid here and there to play dj gigs yeah at least two years of making not very much money um, and, at, and during that time, we'd be like trying to hook them up with a manager, try, you know, assisting them, speaking to labels. And, you know, after two years, you hope to have like a full international team, you know, a label distribution manager, you know, other agents, you know, maybe an agent in or a, like a promoter partner in Australia, Asia, America. Then you can really, you know, if the artist um, is is up for it and delivering the goods you know at the, at the heart of it all is the artist and their creativity and their output and what they do I mean it's just I've always you know that's that's the most important thing so we you know what we do is to facilitate that we can't I'm I'm totally not interested in some sort of formula that could break anyone as a DJ for example like if the, the first and foremost thing is what is the artist doing? What is their, you know, what's their creativity? What are they making? What art are they making? And then that inspires the whole team and what you can do. Um, I've got no interest in working on an act who just, you know, wants to be successful because, you know, without that art at the, the core of it. So, which, right, you know. Yeah, success for the sake of success. Yeah, yeah, which... 
we, I mean, we were sharing, a few people in the office were sharing this thing that went up on RA a week ago about like, how do you break an act? And everybody was, oh my God, you know, um, I don't know if you saw that, but it was, it was kind of this, like, it was kind of a lot of like, it was, it should have been called more like, how do you hype an act, you know? Um, and maybe that's like a bugbear of people in the industry when you've been working for a long time, because I'm a firm believer that the, like I said, the most important thing is the is the the creativity and the art of the artist, and then everything flows from that. Without that, that you believe in, it's very hard to 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 motivate a team and do much. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because I guess is there a subtle difference between hyping an act and and promoting an act? Because obviously everyone needs to be sold in some respect because it is, you know, it is a market at the end of the day. And I guess, um, you know, part of the job of a, you know, a good manager and a good booking agent is positioning that act in, in the sort of marketplace. I mean, it gets into a really kind of quite a distasteful terminology quite, quite quickly when we start talking about this stuff. But let me ask you though. Well, Hank, no, I think, I think that's, that's a really interesting point just to, just to try and, yeah. I mean, I, w- I would say the difference is like when you, when you can, when I'm on the phone to a, a promoter and I'm saying, look, I'm working on this act. They're fucking amazing. Check this out. And I, and I show them what they're doing, I, whether that's like, you know, some recordings or an album or, you know, like, um, a, a mix that they've done or something like that, that if, if it, you know, if that's, if I listen to it and look at it and I'm like, this is fucking amazing. It's blowing me away. Then there we go. You know, I'm hope you know, I'm hoping that when I sell it <laughs> to promoters that they get the same buzz. What I find hard is when, when you don't, you know, like you'll have, sort of managers, you know, I don't want to be like gnarly or anything, but it, it sometimes you just feel like that's lacking. This core kind of like art in the center of it all is, is missing. And there's just a lot of kind of fluff and hype and chat about how amazing this person is. And you're like, right, this is kind of hype. And you can kind of go along with that. And, you know, there's lots of acts that do really, really well. But it's a, for me, it's a, it's an important distinction. And I mean, it sounds a bit kind of pretentious, but I don't know. I'm just trying to give a, give an insight into the thought process. Yeah, 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 sure. I, that all definitely makes sense. Um, what I was going to ask was, um, going back to the point you made about the difference between the situation of bands and DJs of a top where you say there's some there are often details to touring a band or just putting a band on a festival whatever just a gig involving a band contractual details and and other stuff which make it more complicated and make it more difficult to to put on events involving bands and like I've I kind of have discussed previously on the show like the, the the relative decline of bands so can you ex- expand a little bit more on, on the differences between the two that, as you alluded to earlier, and then maybe put it in that context, if you agree, that bands have declined? Relatively. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, going back to that kind of contractual side, uh, I, I just think, I think touring a band is just, it's, there's much more upfront cost for the band. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's less profit per person, if you want to put it like that, because any fee is split four ways or whatever. You need, it's it's almost impossible for a band of more than two people to operate without 
management. So, you know, you've got that in there, whereas a solo DJ can, in my experience, can operate quite successfully without uh, management if they if they want. Um, I'm not saying that they wouldn't gain more from having a good manager, but they can they can do it. So you've already got like, you've already got a lot of splits going on. Then, you know, then you've got to rehearse, you've got rehearsal studios. So you've got that to, before you can tour, you've got the extra flight costs. I mean, it's already kind of spinning me out. Um, and, and then, you know, I was referencing, you know, American bands that come into, to Europe. So, you know, you've got huge uh, travel costs, but more on a kind of post-pandemic contractual front, you know, all the, basically the clauses in the contracts have just tightened up. And whereas you'd, you know, um, a few years ago, you could probably, if you had a trusted relationship between an agent and a promoter, you can kind of just, you know, like you both know what the deal is, you know what's in the contract, no one's going to screw each other over, let's get on with it, let's go. You know, there's a signed contract, but we're not going to, you know, we know we're not going to end up in court. That's changed um, because of, you know, the unprecedented kind of cancellation situation with the pandemic. And and it, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've probably gone through this in detail already, but it, it just brought up the whole force majeure thing that was, that was glossed over before. Because suddenly when people are like, oh, we have to cancel this tour and it's, no one's fault. It's just because the you know the, the governments are saying there's a pandemic. Um, this is force majeure, and then everyone's like scrambling to read this up. You know, kind of blow off the dust from the force majeure clause on the contracts, and they're just like, right, okay, this means that you know the contract's cancelled, and everybody bears their own costs. So this band who's just invested fifty grand to set off on their tour is now fifty grand down. You compare that with you compare that with a a solo act based in Berlin or London who is playing as many shows in a month, but if one or two of them get cancelled, it doesn't have such a domino effect on the whole tour. Then just a couple of shows disappear. They stay at home. They say, okay, whatever, we cancel that flight. You know, I'm a grand down, but I'm doing all the rest of the shows. The the pro, you know, the issue with the band is that if a few of the shows go, so two countries impose um, some sort of restrictions, those shows go, they have these huge holes in the tour where the f- travel doesn't join up, the tour bus, you know, it's the margins are so tight unless you are headliner level uh, or at least like sub-headliner level. If you're, if you're medium-sized, even a band who's doing like 2,000 tickets in each venue, when you break down the budget, like I've just been talking about, you're like, wow, this band isn't really making that much. So I think that probably gets to the, core of that problem and maybe you know maybe maybe that has an effect on why at some point people in in that situation in a band i mean you know to a certain extent it was like that before the pandemic now it's just like really amplified because no promoter wants to be on the line for paying you know like a deposit the band spend it all on flights and then there's restriction imposed and the money doesn't come back. So yeah, every, everyone's just very, very on the detail now. And it's put a lot more responsibility and pressure on the acts, on the touring acts um, to cover their upfront costs, in, you know, insure themselves, blah, 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 blah. Maybe that is part of why it's harder to succeed as a band. I mean, you know, a mid-level solo act could probably, you know, can do well because it's just them. 
um, for a band, it, it doesn't work in the long run. You have to go up to that next level to be successful. That's probably coupled with just general shifting, shifting kind of audience, which has definitely gone more dancey, more electronic than it was 10, 20 years ago. And so that, you know, the festivals are quite happy if it's a solo electronic act, you know, with loads of lasers and visuals. I think, I think 10, 15 years ago, that would have felt a bit kind of like a bit thin and they'd be like, no, we want a, we want a proper live show. We want a band, you know? So I think that that kind of demand for a live show in inverted commas has dissipated as well. And it's perfectly acceptable for two, one or two people to play in front of a massive audience, you know? Your Fortetsy, John Hopkins, you know, stuff like that is totally, totally fine. Yeah, and <laughs> you know? I guess it's much more of a thing now that festivals do their own production, right? So they're going to, like, if, if you've got a bunch of solo acts playing on a stage, they're going to make sure that stage looks great for the whole day, for the whole night. Absolutely. So it's kind of like less onus on each individual act to bring. Yeah. And I mean, you take, you take that to the extreme of stuff like Tomorrowland and and it's like, there's the biggest production in the world and the guys and people are just turning up with the USB sticks. You know, that's, that's happened. It wasn't like that. Yeah. And that was, um, what was, what was, really interesting about that to me was um, how successful they were able to be during the pandemic with their virtual event. Yes. They sold tons of tickets to that, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I, I I read about that and I mean, we were playing around with doing virtual events and we quickly came to the conclusion that it works for kind of bigger stuff. I, you know, I kept seeing some like pop stuff doing well. Um, um, It's, it didn't really work for smaller acts because you just can't generate enough um, online ticket revenue to do something interesting and special. And and also that type of audience on smaller electronic acts have, have been used to having it for free, you know, with Boiler Room and stream, you know, free streaming events like that. So, you know, when Nick Cave did his big show, I think for his audience, it was something really unique, unusual and special, and they were happy to buy a ticket. But for for electronic acts, people are like, why do I have to pay five quid for this? I've been watching this stuff free for the last five years, you know. Um, so yeah, that was a weird one. So uh, why why it worked so well for Tomorrowland? I don't know. Is there was their audience? I mean, they clearly have a massive young audience, so maybe that just really clicked and everybody was up for it. And I guess maybe that they've built the, the brand that they've built around that production thing is so strong that that, yeah. that the expectation was there that they were going to do something really special with it, I guess. May have been a factor, yeah. must have been a factor, right? Did you watch it or anything? Did you? I, I, I mean, I saw their little clips. I didn't, I didn't go into the whole thing, but I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's difficult not to be a sort of... Um, sort of old bitter old dudes when looking at that kind of thing it's like but i've been i've I've played at tomorrowland i've been to the festival right and and it is pretty mad and pretty impressive yeah on the one hand but it but it also it does i mean it it feels quite a lot like 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 an actual theme park you know in the sense that yeah it's it's cool and everything but it's all it's all quite plastic but and the audience i mean the audience is what kind of like 18 to 25 sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, probably a bit more mixed than you'd 
didn't you assume? Because it's been going for quite a long time now. So you've probably got quite a lot of kind of old timers who've been going for years and years. Yeah. And the music's um, developed a little bit. And you know, there's enough, like you know, Dave Clark does his stage there and that sort of thing. So there's kind of enough, quote unquote, sort of serious music for people to kind of, for the older older heads <laughs> who, um, you know, mature away from the kind of more main stagey type stuff. Yeah, to keep them coming back because it is like I said, like it's a it's it's a pretty crazy experience. And once you've kind of built up that reputation, that kind of like loyalty, yeah. I guess, amongst people, then then doing something like in a virtual event, you know, it's like it's it's like any fan base thing, right? You know, once you've got loyal fans, they'll follow you, whether it's a festival or a band or anything else. You know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess if you're going to buy a ticket for a, a virtual event, I mean, the the you know the thing that the first question I'd ask is like, is this going to be like mental? Is it going to be really, really interesting? And so I guess their audience were convinced it, it would be, uh, you know, Nick Cave's audience knew that it, they'd be getting a really nice performance from Nick Cave. So that, you know, that ticks that box. I think the, the issue is when you can't, um, you can't provide like something really special because then you're just back to that kind of like boiler room online event thing. Which I I thought that was all quite interesting through the the virtual ticket stuff. I, th- I mean, there's definitely something in it, but it it just seems like it's got quite a long way to go. I mean, it's heading that way, isn't it? It's like VR kind of experience stuff is definitely coming down the line, but it's still got to be amazing. It can't be crap. <laughs> right. I mean, it's stuff like doing concerts in Minecraft and all that kind of stuff. You know. Mm, yeah. And and again, that that requires the existing sort of like might you know if you've got someone like Minecraft which has a kind of fanatical fan base in of itself yeah you know you can then build stuff on top of that absolutely you know so I guess it's I guess it's a question of um uh yeah just um, like building upon these kind of existing kind of online virtual communities to put music on top of those in in some kind of a way as the technology develops which is again something we talked about last week on the show yeah Cool. So let's let's go back to the start then, shall we? You you mentioned that you guys have been going for what a bit over twenty years now, and you you've got a background just in... just under twenty years, right? Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because we've got we've got twenty years of hot flush coming up, which makes me feel extremely old. But like, so it's yeah, it's probably around the same time. Yeah, yeah. But but you've got backgrounds associated with Warp Records, and I believe mm-hmm. you were at working at Warp before you started the agency. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's that's correct. My uncle Steve is one of the founders oh, of Warp yeah. Records. Of Steve yeah. Beckett. So that that was kind of my my in when I was about um, well when I finished university when I was about um, when did I finish uni nineteen. I I convinced him after a lot of nagging to let me come and uh, you know like make tea for people it took it took me a while to realize what he was up to i mean i got into music really early and started djing and making parties basically at, at uni um and then kind of i think learned you know going to i was i remember like nagging in for guest list to go to like raves and stuff in leeds when i was about 16 so i was aware that what he was up to was something um, really interesting. Um, but I think when I left uni, I was like, look, just, just let me come and make tea. I'll do it for free. And, uh, you know, and that was when I was like, oh, this is really, this is really in- interesting and cool and fun. 
and then just managed to kind of, you know, convince people there to let me, you know, answer the phones and stuff like that. I mean, I was just, it's funny when you leave uni, isn't it? You just like, I mean, it's different for other people and I'm really envious of them when they know what they want to do, but I had just no fucking idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something. So it's like this kind of mild desperation mixed with loads of energy uh, when you're like 19 and he's like, I need to do something. And, and I think, couple of people there kind of were like, yeah, all right, just let him hang around, stick around. Um, but there was so much change in then. So when would that have been? That would have been like 99, 2000. Right. So just in the midst of the whole Napster thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was, I mean it's, there was so much going on. I mean, also for Warp, obviously, they had just had a, like this insane 10 years of like exploding. And so... They, they were, I guess they were in a kind of like a phase, like phase two or three or whatever. They were just moving to London. You know, they didn't have the record shop anymore, obviously. they Some of the team was changing. And I, I managed to kind of like get in there and be very enthusiastic about doing anything whilst that was going on. Um, you know, the the internet was was blowing up. <laughs> it was like, you know, they when I joined Warp, they had a really crap old website. And whilst I was there, they... They unveiled like a new snazzy flash uh, website. And so I, you know, I kind of got in on that, just helping doing some uh, content and stuff like that. Anyway, so that that was my in. And I quite quickly, you know, gravitated to doing live stuff within Warp because that was my, you know, that was already my interest um f- through doing events so to hang on a sec, what, I mean, when you say live stuff do you mean promoting their like being involved in the promotion of their parties or would did they have some sort of agency like tagged onto the label at that stage or no they, no they didn't they yeah it was it, it was an interesting time so there were some agents working with some of the bigger acts you know, like uh, I think Aphex had an agent uh maybe Orteca had an agent but you know this is when, hang on, this is 2000. So this is over 20 years ago. So the, the whole live music thing, especially for alternative electronic music, was was in, totally different from what it is now. Like, you know, not many people had an agent, not many people toured. You know, that we can come back to that because that's that was that's interesting for me to think about now how, how much it's changed for acts like that. But so when I was there, there were a few of us um, Tom Brown, who now runs Lex Records, and Tom Panton, and we were like, we, you know, we were like, we want to do a warp parties. It's crazy that we don't have warp parties. They used to do some in Sheffield. We're in London now. We want to do warp parties. And eventually, Rob and Steve were like, yeah, all right, as long as it doesn't take you out of office time. <laughs> and um, and we were like, no, that's fine. And uh, we started Nesh, the Nesh parties at Electroworks. So that was like me and a couple of other people running those. And that that was the first time where we could go to all the artists on Warp and be like, hey, come and you know, come and play the Warp party. So that was when it started, when I started kind of really um meeting the the artists and, and working with them directly. Uh, you know, there weren't any agents or managers involved. I mean, maybe some of them had did have, but you know, in that kind of warp doing warp parties there was no one else involved so it was this very direct um connection with with a lot of the artists and 
Also, I mean, also Warp, I remember they were doing some of their own bigger, they were doing that like Lighthouse. I remember that one that was a bit of a, it was a chaotic one, but that was pretty nuts. And that was run by Barry Hogan, ATP. So I was, I guess I was like a young lad seeing this happen and having, you know, being able to be involved with these Nesh parties and just being like, wow, this is, this is it. This, this is what I want. This is the fun bit. And then you go back in the office on a Monday morning, you're like, this isn't the fun bit. I don't, you know, so, so I just wanted to do more and more of that. And because I, I was DJing, I was able to, um, you know, jump on the odd gig and go off to the odd European gig with people like Chris Clark. Chris, Chris Clark got signed. Jimmy Edgar got signed when I was at Warp. And we, you know, we were kind of similar age. We were all kind of like 20 so we became friends and, and I, you know, I was just, I guess I, I ended up in this situation where I was, I may, maybe the contact at Warp who could, you know, like I said earlier, who was kind of like in between some of the artists and some of the people who wanted to do stuff. So, you know, like Sonar would get in touch and then, I would end up speaking to them and they'd be like, we want to do a warp showcase. And I'd be like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. And, you know, so I was doing stuff like that. And then I think as it went on, I had more like remit to do, to do other stuff. So I did the, I did the warp, like a warp tour, like that was just, you know, we just did a tour around Europe and it went into America, but you know, I was heading that up. Was that the magic bus tour? Yeah, yeah, the Warp Magic Bus Tour. <laughs> yeah, I had that as, a, as a, something to ask you about. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, it was... A, it, okay, so it was like... I think there was also this feeling within the company. I guess, when was that? That was like um, 2000... Yeah, 2001. Yeah, 2002. And I think there was a feeling in the in the company... There was a bit of a lull. It was this like, you know, new millennium... <laughs> They just had this like huge ten years of like breaking Apex, breaking Square Pusher, Alteca kicking off, LFO, and and then there was this kind of like lull, maybe where people turned away from like electronic music or that type of electronic music a bit, and it went more bandy. I don't know, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that makes. It was sense. that when like indie Britpop <laughs> was that when. It was like this. It was this. There was that kind of second Britpop thing, wasn't it? It was like basically where every band was called the something, like for about five yeah. years. Like, <laughs> yeah, and that that seems to just like eat quite a lot of the rest of the. Um, so yeah, certainly the kind of uh, kind of alternative electronic scene, I think, got subsumed yeah. by that a bit in the sort of like early to mid two thousands. Yeah, and it, I mean, then it was kind of frowned upon to you know if you went to see an act play and they were not playing instruments, it was a bit like what they do, you know, it was that kind of fell out of favor a bit and i think i think i was at warp going like come on you know like let's let's do some like let's get on the front foot let's do a tour and everyone's like well well and i'm like yeah i mean yeah we have a roster of artists they you know they're up for doing stuff let's do a tour and i think i put together a plan of how it would you know pretty much break even and then rob and steve were like yeah all right whatever and it was it was pretty chaotic, but yeah, I mean, it was like a, a, a tour around Europe with um, with a, with like we had we had this big snazzy tour bus with a design on the side that said Walk Magic Bus Tour <laughs> with a massive logo on there. There's a really funny review in NME that's online where 
a, a journalist who worked at Enemy then Piers Piers Martin Piers Martin I'm going to say Piers Morgan Piers <laughs> Morgan um, I just remember him as Piers uh, came on the bus for a couple of days and there's a really funny review I think it's called something like Coke Bitches and Electronic Music or something ridiculous like that um, which made it sound really rock and roll I mean now I say it back it sounds a bit misogynistic as well I don't think it was like about that but um, I don't know something like that um, and yeah anyway we did all that it was it was fine it was pretty chaotic um, but it yeah it gave I think the artists liked it that there was someone who's kind of pushing out and kind of saying so come on let's do some stuff because it was probably in a time where they'd done a lot of stuff in the last 10 years and then like I said there's just a bit of a lull so here's this like whippersnapper he's got the same second name as the boss going come on like we want to do a rave in in Leon uh, and it, so again got to know the artists a bit more um, and then the, uh, the, uh, a big thing for me was when um, I met some people from the South Bank. I think it was Glenn Max um, from the South Bank. You remember him? Uh, nope. A re- American guy who was working at South Bank, like Royal Festival Hall, um, and he was quite out of character with, with the kind of vibe at, s- at the South Bank, was like, let's do some crazy shit, man. <laughs> and I was like, hell Yeah. And out of that, there was a collaboration, the Warp Symphonietta, Warp Works and the 21st Century Masters, or 20th Century Masters, Warp Works and the 20th Century Masters um, collaboration at the Royal Festival Hall. And then we toured that. And I was, I was right at the, the that was, I was right in the middle of all that. Um, and that was kind of my... I think during, I think we did two versions of it. You know, it's like sold out Royal Festival Hall and then we took it to like London Philharmonic. And I think I think the, a lot of the artists, you know, like, you know, Aphex was there and Tom Squarepusher was involved and Plaid and Myra Callix. And like, I think they were all like, all right, this is kind of, <laughs> this is kind of cool. Because it was, you know, it was the orchestra playing some of the tracks you know, reworked with visuals by, you know, the Flat E crew so it it was like a big involved new thing. Let me let me ha- let me jump in here and just ask you yeah. specifically about do. about Aphex because he did his famous thing where he came out at a festival and read read a newspaper during <laughs> during during his set, which I think I might have been when, there. When for. was that? I think it was like ninety five or something. It was at like tribal gathering or something like that. Yeah, and. <laughs> You know, in a sort of like absolutely typically, you know, performance art. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And you know, you, you've you've represented him for well, since since the kind of period that we're talking about, right? Where you're just about to get onto like launching the agency. So yeah, so what was his? I mean, and and you just mentioned that he was quite enthusiastic about all this stuff that you were doing around that, which. I mean, I have to say, I mean, it's a, a little bit of a surprise to me that he was so into into all that sort of thing because I don't. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know him personally, and my all my assumptions about him are just based upon. You He's know, not just, into anything, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's just like so, blase and passe about everything, right? Blase, blase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, no, not at all. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah. That it's funny that I mean, a couple of people have said that. No, he's. I mean. It, He's obsessed with music. He's an absolute obsessive um, when it comes to 
music in general, actually, art also. But I mean, you know, you know, obviously electronic music and and technical, you know, the, the techniques and production. He's he's an absolute obsessive. So the idea of orchestras playing his music is generally interesting to him. But I mean, that's not particularly a new thing. I think that's happened quite a lot. And I think plenty of orchestras have just been like, hey, we did, you know, we performed this track. And you're like, oh, right, okay, cool. But I think the difference here was it was it was in London. He was in London. You know, a lot of the artists were in London. And we were able to just, you know, because it was us at Warp, we were able to kind of communicate and say, what do you reckon? You know, what pieces would you like to see perform? You know, we, that's unusual because it just, the communication is everything with acts like that. Um, and, you know, and he came down, I remember Tom Jenkinson and, and Richard coming down for different sound checks where pieces were being performed and they were like absolutely into it. And, you know, they'd be like, I don't think that drummer works on this track. Let's do something different. Or they'd be like, this is fucking brilliant. Can we like put more like chains in the, in the piano to make it more like prepared. Um, so that, you know, we, were, I guess we were just able to get them into it. And, and then the show itself, you know, festival halls are just amazing. And the, the London Sinfonietta are an amazing group of people. And, you know, and Glenn was a big part of it. Having this like American dude with curly hair just was, it just was, it just didn't seem like a stuffy event it, it it felt exciting and you know his whole thing was like we're gonna make this like a rock and roll show <laughs> and so it just had that energy about it and you know and the flat e team some of my oldest mates robin mcnicholas and those guys were doing all the visuals so it just felt exciting and i think that rubbed off i think it's a misconception that people like uh apex and autecker and square pusher are not interested in in stuff like that they're they're really really obsessive i mean if anything it's this kind of like perfectionist thing which sometimes in my opinion gets in the way because they're like you know like there's a lack of control involved it's somehow and they're like no i don't want to do it and then so it doesn't happen i think that happens a lot but if you can get past that and i mean you know like i say that's one of the things that i learned quickly is like what doesn't work so if you can if you can figure out how to get them to engage then it can go anywhere and i mean they are you know incredibly creative um artists and if you can tap if you can kind of get that conversation going and broaden it up i mean that that's the challenge that's the whole challenge is to is to get the trust built so you can be part of the creative conversation so well that's a brilliant idea let's let's do something with that and we're going to do it properly. We're not. It's not going to be a shit show. It's going to be amazing. Don't worry. You know, and you're going to be there every step of the way. And so that, yeah, I mean, that's the whole challenge, really. Yeah. Okay. So this takes us up to um, pretty close to where you started the agency. So what was the transition then from doing these sorts of things to branching out and and doing something on your own? It was. It was doing events like that. And and hanging with the artists and you know doing little tours with the artists and and seeing that kind of that world and just seeing the door open a bit and then going back into an office in London and having to do administration and stuff and I was like I was just like I can't I can't I've seen too much. 
the the, bo- the Pandora's box is open. I can't. I I just I just need to go and do that shit. But I couldn't do that shit. I didn't. I still at that time I wasn't even really clear what an agent did. Um, you know, I mean, I'd I'd spoken to agents and I knew some of the acts had them, but I had no experience of what an agent was doing day to day. So, but I just knew I needed to go and, you know, I, I'd also fallen into this, you know, with, you know, very, very luckily, you know, because of the Uncle Steve thing, I'd had this opportunity, which I'd grabbed with all limbs. Um, but I'd, I'd never really like had taken time to figure out what the hell I wanted to do. So I think I realized I needed to just kind of step back and, and see what happened. And it, it, it's weird sometimes in your life, it just feels right to do that and you can't do anything else. I'm sure you've had times like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you find yourself in a, in positions, right? And then suddenly things happen. Yeah. And maybe, maybe it's, it's harder to do that the more responsibility you have. But at that time, you know, didn't have any kids and didn't, (laughs) didn't have any worries. So I was just like, fuck it, (laughs) you know? Um, But, but looking back now and applying some sort of uh, hindsight, you know, I was, um, I think I was aware that there was some sort of an opportunity and just that I really liked working closely with the artists. I just found it. I've just always found it's the most inspiring thing I've ever done is where you're working closely with an artist that you just, you're just amazed by. You're just like, God, you're like a freaking magician. Um, I'm just, I'm just totally in awe of what you're up to. And I want, and, and, and I think when you get the sense that there's a there's some sort of a, a working relationship as well. You know, there's some sort of friendship, but there's also this kind of thing um, where you can work with them. I was just like, right, I'm, I've got to do this, and then and then I realised, ah, okay, this you know this could be like agent work, and then I and then I thought oh, I should start, I should call it something, and came up with the name Little Big, and you know, to start with, I was just trying to sort out the odd gig for like Chris Clark and Jimmy Edgar. And, you know, to be honest, and I've, <laughs> I've, I've apologized to Chris, uh, numerous occasions. The first few things I did were just an absolute mess because I had no, I had no structure at all. I had no experienced agent being like, right, you need a database and you need to like a, an itinerary and you'll be, you know, it was, it was just like, do you want to play in Hamburg? And he'd be like, yeah, all right. And then, and then I'd be like, there's your flight. And and then he'd get the flight and he'd call me and be like, what do I do now? And I'm like, oh, uh, well, you go to the club, don't you? Like, just play. You know, I think I think actually, you know, one or two shows, I think for Chris just didn't happen because I just completely failed to sort out all the detail. And then through that failure, I realized, right, that's what this role is. And this is the service that they require. I need to be really on the detail. And then I think that's when it started properly. And I knew really where, what the service was that I was going to provide to people. Right. And so, so you started with, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it, I, that actually resonates in my own experience of starting a record label with no prior experience at all and making just unbelievable mistakes like <laughs> along the way in a similar kind of a way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing that people stick with you, isn't it? When you look back, but I mean, but how else could it work? I mean, in, unless you get trained up, you know, in in a in a big office. But that that's just that's just boring, isn't it? 
<laughs> I mean, I did, I did work experience at Sony and just hated it so much and, you know, learned nothing and was just an obvious, like, and just probably stuck out amongst the other, the other kind of interns as someone who is definitely going nowhere in, in the industry, you know, just because yeah, of my complete yeah, yeah. disinterest and everything they were doing commercially. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you, did you get anything from it? Apart from not wanting to be there, I mean, looking back on it, what now, about like how how things are administrated? Did you I mean, get any sense? A little of that? bit. I mean, like I have to say that. Um, so I spent like a month basically working in the compilations department, which is the most commercial part of a of a major label. Do you know what I mean? So it's just like the absolute like in in the kind of in the oven, as it were. And yeah, I just you know I was definitely not like mentally prepared, you know, for the realities of it. And I didn't, you know, just did not engage at all. But looking back on it, I suppose it was useful in the sense that I, I know what it's like in those offices, like firsthand, yeah. which which I think is yeah. useful. And you get, it, you get a sense of the mentality of the people as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, that's where I was lucky because the, the uh, Warp office was basically one open plan office. So you kind of you could kind of catch up on what was going on, you know, like you'd overhear a conversation with an artist, you'd see people handling promo, you'd see the guys doing the accounts and you'd see like legal conversations going on. So I think I picked up a lot on that. And also you'd have artists coming in, you know, and if you're on the front desk, you can greet them. (laughs) You're like, hello, I'm Ned. Nice to meet you, uh, Mark Bell. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I, I was lucky to to pick up a bit for it, but I I think I, yeah, like I said, when I left, I I, f- I really had a feeling like I wanted to do my own thing and and just see where it went, and um, and then when I figured out what an agent does, I could I could kind of set a course. I mean, it was still chaotic, and you know, when I look back now, you know, scribbling down in a notebook the deals, and you know, probably there weren't really many contracts getting signed, or if you know, if there was a contract. But you know, shows happened. You know, I did did nice tours for acts like Jimmy Edgar and stuff. Um, you know, his first. Yeah, I'm I'm proud. Like the first trip over from Detroit for Jimmy was for a walk party that I was organising at the Coronet, and then I booked his tour around Europe. And so me and Jimmy have always been like really, really uh, close comrades um, because it, like he was like 19 then or something. Um, so, yeah, somehow it worked because those acts, you know, there wasn't at that time there weren't many people who gave a shit as well. There weren't many people who would actually want the job of earning fifty quid commission per show to to sort of tour out. Um, and this goes back to that a lot of the artists didn't have um, agents. Um, so yeah, so I mean that was going to be kind of my, kind of my next question, really. So like you were able to sort of gradually entice some some you know massive names onto the agency and obviously like the warp connection was you know was obviously helpful there and and the way what you've just been describing about having previously worked with certain people like apex yeah but you also mentioned earlier on that you know the overall kind of live landscape for quote-unquote alternative electronic music has changed like pretty fundamentally since that period and that's obviously the you know the, the time period of, of the development of, of Little Big as well. So mm. tell me a little bit about, well, f- first of all, like, so what was the process of 
well i mean like you you've described about how you gradually kind of felt your way into like being a professional agent right which is a yeah. necessary thing but like so at, at what point did you start to feel i guess like you know confident as a as a company like, you know as a, as a i was gonna say as a company but i suppose as an agent but like as you were able to kind of like attract bigger names like tell me a bit about that yeah yeah that's 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 funny to remember because for a long time maybe the first certainly the first few years it was it was just me on a laptop and a phone uh, in a tiny basement and um that that was a kind of you know that was a good start because it was me who had you know had those connections that so i was able to i think you know i started working with like people like Richard Devine and Jamie Liddell really early, you know, obviously most, yeah, if probably at that point, all of them were on warp um, and Chris Clark and Jimmy Edgar. And then, so that went on for a couple of years. And then I, I, I realized that I needed help because I just couldn't kind of like manage the administration. And I can't remember exactly which way around it went, but sometime just before I left Brighton, which was 2007, I moved to Berlin. But sometime around then, I started working with Paul Fowler. He came and joined me at Little Big and also Sam Barker. And I think around about then, it was like, ah, okay, you know, other people involved, you know, you can kind of split up some of the tasks and it felt more manageable. It felt less kind of just chaos. Um, That went on a bit. And then... The first person I kind of employed, I'm sure they're yeah freelancer, um, who I you know who wasn't already a friend was uh, Mia Mia Perelmutter, who still works at Little Big, and I think I think around I remember being very proud telling Richard Afex like I have an assistant, and he was like that that's really good that's a good thing because you know he I'm sure the artists could see that you know that. It's too much. There's too much administration. There's too much detail for one set of eyes to to manage. And you, you need you need different people looking at it different ways to go. Hang on, this flight doesn't make sense. You know, we don't have time to change change over in Gatwick. And what, so there's a lot of just administration. I think when I had people supporting on that, then it felt professional. I could confidently you know go push out to people like Richard and Ortecker and Mark Bell and say no 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 you know we're going to do it properly then you start saying things like i can we can do it better than anyone else and all that kind of (laughs) (laughs) music industry stuff yeah (laughs) yeah the usual stuff but yeah that was definitely a turning point so sort of 2007 2008 it kind of got more professional which was when i moved to berlin and i was also able to have more space because it was cheaper to have um a bigger flat and an office room and stuff like that was that the main motivating factor of moving to Berlin? I actually moved just about the same time as you for basically for for the for that reason, just because it was cheap. Yeah, it was stuff. exactly. It was like some sort of human osmosis. Like it was just like it just happened quite naturally. Because I mean, I was coming out here with artists and like doing a bit of DJing and staying in friends' flats and just being like, "Sorry, sorry, what?" <laughs> like. This flat, you know, and at that time, it was like pre-financial crash. England was just like out of control, expensive for rent and everything. And but also the pound was really strong. I remember like coming to Berlin and being like, whoa, like I've got so many euros. So it was just like me, Paul, Sam Barker, uh, my wife at that time, 
and Tim Exile. I was living with Tim Exile. We were all like, let's fucking get to Berlin ASAP. And so there was like a wave of us who moved over. And that that kind of went along with Little Big becoming more like a company, uh, like an operation. It was, yeah, it was a really exciting time. You know, those, the artists that we were working with, you know, and because the landscape was changing. Um, so yeah, around, around about then, it felt like electronic music was kind of got this new wind in its sails. The, the lull was over and it was perfectly acceptable for a, a solo electronic artist to perform on a bigger stage again uh, with a laptop. And we were like, well, hey, here we go. Maybe, maybe also like DJing was, you know, it was like people were starting to DJ off laptops and with controllers and stuff, and it was getting more interesting. So that kind of like, is it a DJ show? Is it a live show was kind of getting blurred and maybe maybe also thinking about it, like production was getting, like you could do more at festivals. You could be like, we want a load of lasers and they would be like, yeah, all right. Maybe LED screens were getting better. So that kind of like festival production was starting. You know, it was, it was probably like, to put it like in a really horrible way, it was probably the birth of EDM was starting. You know what? <laughs> it, that's exactly what was I, what I was thinking too. Yeah, that's exactly what came up in my mind. And, you know, we were also sniffy about it at the time and, you know, with good reason because the music, let's face it, was terrible. But I think it opened the door maybe to quite a It was like a, a new of generation of, of electronic. I, I remember like, I remember hearing Skrillex for the first time and thinking, oh, this is fucking brilliant. Actually, there were, there were some kind of, new wave dubstepy acts that remember 16 bit and they had that chainsaw track that that was a real like whoa this is kicking off and we were doing i was doing overkill events then and i was running the overkill stage at glade and we had acts like 16 bit play and like you know 2000 people going fucking nuts to to like a super produced chainsaw sound dubstep thing i was like yeah this is this is kind of interesting and then skrillex came came along and it was like um i think this is okay and then it was like and this is different (laughs) it's just very quickly it was like one summer to the next it was like no this is not cool um i mean nothing against all of that stuff you know it's like fair play but um but it, it it was it was like okay this is an american thing this is not like a uk thing yeah yeah, um, we've we've, dis- we've discussed the um the development of dubstep on the on the show. And, yeah, and the, yeah, I'm uh, sure you have. Yeah, you were right at the right in the heart of it. Yeah, of it. and that whole kind of North American thing. I mean, it's um a lot of them are Canadians actually, like you know, Datsik and Excision. Those those guys who, I mean, Excision now is is just this huge act. Like it's mad. Like, and we've we've talked about how they ultimately or the the kind of bigger of those acts just ultimately sort of transcended the genre and obviously Skrillex went on to do all sorts of different stuff some of it quite interesting actually in fairness to him yeah no, t- yeah absolutely I've got I, I never I try not to be pissy about anything like that because I think it I think it's so hard to make it long term in, in the music industry from any angle that you can't hold it against people who are successful it's kind of bad juju <laughs> yeah no i totally agree absolutely so um just sort of returning to that sort of theme of like how like the overall sort of like live landscape has changed in that time like what, what how would you sort of broadly 
define that as you know um, in terms of like going from a a position of like hardly any hardly anyone even having having an agent to these enormous festival kind of things like what were the kind of defining features of that would you say well it was it was a general shift back away well or just a general shift towards dance music again electronic music and and a kind of new generation of that so there, there was a lot of kind of energy bubbling there and, you know, a lot of audience wanted that type of stuff. And I think promoters realised that they could they could tune their events and festivals a bit more dance. It hadn't fully gone. It was it was a great time, actually, because it was a real like a good of a good festival would be like a nice blend of like, you know, bands, live bands and um and like electronic acts and DJs and, but like more kind of like performance electronic acts, bit arty. It was, it was, I remember it being a really good time, you know, where acts like, uh, plaid and, you know, or and Chris Clark and stuff would get offered alongside, uh, you know, kind of like American kind of edgy indie bands. I mean, it sounds a bit weird. That's a bit simplified, but there was that kind of mix up going for, for a good, you know, like, field day in London or something um, um, was like a real nice mix of that you know, sonar and Primavera. They were all, you know, anyway, um, it just moved more towards electronic music. I think just, there was just a growing audience who were up for dance music basically. And, but, but a kind of newer uh, dance music, like a super produced kind of glossy house and techno and, and electronic. And, um, it meant that people like me who were working with acts like that were able, just had more opportunities to, to offer them. So there were more festivals uh, and more clubs saying, we want your, yeah, we want your act to play or okay. Yes, your act can play. And so it just, it, it just grew. It just expanded. And it meant that as an agency, we could do more. We could take on more acts, take on more agents. It meant that those acts were busy touring, playing gigs, earning a living, and um, it happy, yeah, good times. <laughs> yeah, that was um, when was that like two thousand nine, ten, eleven? I mean, that's when we, that's when Marcus Noblet joined Little Big, but who was based in Bristol. It's when Debbie Clare joined two thousand ten. It's when Brandon Rosenbluth joined and 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 other people too who who no longer work at little big but they are all still here and an integral part of the of the operation like very experienced agents now and and all they also have um very different kind of backgrounds um different rosters which gives little big it's it's broad church (laughs) um like we we're very used to booking like live touring bands, like traditional live touring bands and, you know, DJs and electronic solo acts uh, and kind of like more theatre, like production stuff. Um, That's a key thing that Little Big does. Um, But yeah, that was a time of expansion. It's also when we started Leisure System. I started Leisure System with Sam Barker. Actually, that was quite soon after we got to Berlin. That was like, I think 2008 was the first one. Um, at the Berghain and then the label started 2011 so and I remember I think I think we the the tagline for Leisure System as a label um, when we started it was electronic dance music 
And then we quickly were like, shit, <laughs> that's EDM and we can't use that anymore. But yeah, it was like, I think it was like this next generation of, you know, taking the kind of like UK electronics of Warp and Ninja and other Planet Mew Reflex, but re reboiling it down into a more kind of like club friendly version. I mean, it's certainly what Mode Selector were up to as well. They were they were coming up at that time. I remember I remember DJing with with them and Apparat like in you know to like 40 people in Hamburg before they were you know properly moderat and stuff so yeah it was that kind of next generation of of EDM for want of a yeah yeah for want of a better term <laughs> okay so the last thing I wanted to ask you about was basically moving into the future like you mentioned earlier like the effect of know the war in Ukraine and you know the various different sort of things that are going on in the world at the moment whether it's you know politics or economics like the cost of living and rates of inflation and you know just a cost associated with putting on events just like kind of skyrocketing in in certain parts of the world but like but pretty generally I think it's fair to say so I mean how do you see that kind of maybe taking a sort of like longer term view maybe over the next say 10 years or so like assuming that these these sort of broad trends are going to continue and like you know we can speculate about you know the degrees to which that might happen but I think it's fair to say that you know that there's going to be a different overall outlook in the, in the next 10 years that have been in the previous 20 like how do you see that affecting like the life of a sort of touring musician I guess would be the be the question yeah, I mean that's also one of the questions that we we're constantly trying to get some insights into. I mean, you know, and you know, you never know. Um no one saw the pandemic coming. So and that that does feel like it's changed um changed things f- f- uh, forever in subtle ways. But yeah, long term, I mean, you know, the god, I mean, I just wish there wasn't the war in Ukraine. <laughs> 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 because it would be it'd be quite a fight, like tidy story wouldn't it it's like well that was that was crazy the pandemic and now we're back and live you know and, and then you've got this kind of like this is kind of shit and horrible and really sad um and it's kind of having all these like knock-on effects can't help feeling that putin kind of like did it at that timing to just really fuck with everyone like just, just when you thought awake, yeah. yeah just when you're coming out of the pandemic but you know where it goes from here i i think you know and this is just this is just guesswork but i think we've got a real rough couple of years ahead with with you know cost of living and everybody feeling the crunch you know travel is really expensive and that's certainly affecting um us for our smaller well all the acts but you know, again, if you're a solo act and you don't tour with many people, you can swallow, you know, doubled, tripled travel costs. But if if you're, you know, some acts can't and some promoters would be looking at that and being like, yeah, I can't pay that much travel. We'll go with something more local. So, you know, th- that's just grinding away. The people that it has the the worst effect on is the, is the kind of smaller, medium-sized acts who are just trying to make a living out of it and have been around a bit and don't have that kind of like hype wave behind them where like every promoter is asking for them. 
you know, they, I, you know, it concerns me about acts like that because, you know, obviously we're concerned about our, our acts and roster having a, a, a long-term, like a full career out of it. We don't want them just to have a successful few years and then be like, right, that's it, you're over. It's like, no, how does this work for 20, 30 years? So, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the climate stuff really concerns us, um, you know, for in, obvious in, reasons. In what respects? Well, I mean, you know, on a on a you know personal level, it concerns us all, like it does everyone. Obviously, for your you know for your family and for your, what's going to happen, you know, for my kids and like what is going to be happening in thirty years. It's kind of it's really really worrying. Obviously, more directly in live music, extreme weather is not good for festivals. Flooding, you know, those festivals that got cancelled in Spain because of the heat wave. That's that's not going anywhere. That's going to get worse. So that stuff's happening. The, the you know the war in Ukraine has like really subtle nasty effects on on certain countries and certain things. Um, it, it's all a bit of a kind of melting pot, and it's it feels to me like next year will be a, a time to kind of. I, I wouldn't want to be investing loads of new money in it, in anything in particular. Uh, I'm being very vague now, but it is vague. I would. It, it doesn't feel like a time to me next year to kind of like try and expand massively. I mean, I know kind of like if you've got, you know, if you can take on billions of bank loans like Live Nation, then you probably would be going, well, this is the time to expand like when everyone else is terrified. But it's not like that for a small agency it, I mean I think even, like a- even for bigger companies I mean part of part of this whole thing is going to be rising interest rates as well so the price of financing that kind of thing is going to be you know it may become prohibitive even for, for larger sure companies. well yeah and I mean you know I mean I, I haven't checked in with any of the big agency I mean I, I do speak to some of the you know some of the big big agents now and again just to swap notes who are kind of like over the years have become friendly um but I can't imagine that they're having a, a much of a different view of it because th- some of their bigger acts, you know, there's more to lose. You know, if you if you have a massive stadium tour pulled, then everyone is down millions. You know, if we have a tour pulled, okay, it's an absolute bummer, but it's not. We're not talking losing millions or anything. So, yeah, it doesn't look great for anyone. It's a time to kind of. Uh, you know, we've consolidated through through the pandemic, as I'm sure a lot of people have. We, you know, we just said um, we want to focus more on, you know, on certain acts. I can't be spread too thin. I need to kind of make sure that, the, you know, that everything's running really tight. So, you know, there's that kind of effect happening. And I know I know a lot of agencies have, have done that. Um, I mean, I do not all of them. I know some agents have signed a lot of acts. We've signed new acts as well. But where it goes from here, I mean, I I believe in live music, in live performance. I don't think that that ever goes away. I think as things get more shaky, people desire it more in a, in a weird way. If that's going to some dingy little basement club on a Saturday night to get wasted because you're just so stressed out, there's that. Or it's you go and see Coldplay and there's 50,000 people there. You know, there's that. It's, you know, it, you get into kind of like human connection and experience. And I, I remember going to some of the first big events that we had running when the restrictions dropped in London and just standing there being like, yeah, this is this is really 
important. This is still absolutely blowing me away. This is, there's just nothing else like it. All those kind of like online events and stuff. Cool. Um, but there's, there's just nothing like being in the same space as, you know, two, three, four, uh, hundred, two thousand people who are all connected to what's going on with the music and, and visuals, lights. It's just a really unique experience. And I don't think that goes anywhere. It's just like, how do you deliver it? And, you know, the other thing is that people have a lot more distractions for entertainment. Um, but I think that just goes in waves as well. You know, like, you know, we've got this kind of like pandemic, kind of like everyone just like binging Netflix and Disney and stuff. But at a certain point, you're like, oh God, fuck this. I've watched everything. I'm bored. I want to go to a, I want to go to a concert. And when you do and you see an act that you like, or you go to a good club night, you're just like, yeah, there's nothing like this. This is just, this is really, really important. You know, there's a reason why people have been doing that since the birth of humankind. Like it's, just something that resonates with us all deeply. So that continues. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, anyway, man, this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it. It's been awesome. Oh, right. Is that, um, are, we, are we at the end? Well, we've done 90 minutes and you said you had to go at 12. So <laughs> we're nearly 10 past. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no, yeah, no, I think that, I think that is a good place to end anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I absolutely do. I mean, I think like, like the general point that this stuff is kind of, it's almost like important on a visceral level, right? I mm. think it's really just important, like to the soul almost, you know, and I was going to sort of suggest like the potential for like, there's always kind of stuff like might lead to, you know, the acceleration of those kind of like, you know, online events and stuff. But as you said, like, there's really no substitute for the real thing. No, there? no, so. no, there, there really, there really isn't. Um, and uh, maybe, maybe the, the pandemic even reminded us of that when you couldn't have it. I mean, certainly this year has been, a huge, like the floodgates opened on events again. I think it needs to settle down. I think there's a couple of years of things being chaotic and, you know, it being a bit tough, but I think then it will just uh, be great. Everything will be great. (laughs) (laughs) I need to give a shout out to a couple more little big people because I mentioned the core team, but I didn't mention that Alma Ernst joined us uh, recently who's um, an amazing agent. And there's also Ali and Tom and Natalie and Alexis who are integral to the team. Um, Nunzia. Yeah, I think that's everyone. I think I've probably forgotten someone, but yeah, that'll do. Just just to say that Little Big is um, is more than some of its parts because of everyone involved, not not because of me. Awesome, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, like I said, yeah, great. This has been great. All right, thanks, Paul. Yeah, that was Ned Beckett and a really enjoyable conversation and one which, as I said at the top, is a little bit different. We hit some different areas compared to previous episodes of the show. Like even when we're even when I've been talking to promoters, this was a slightly different angle on the whole live music thing. So yeah, really, really great to have Ned on the show. Really interesting to hear the stories about Warp Records in the early 2000s and the development of that side of live music, particularly, yeah, those Aphex Twin stories, Aphex Twin stories are always good. Anyway, remember to leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really does help. And if you don't feel able or willing to fork out actual money 
via Patreon, then please do that. Reminder of the Patreon link, it's patreon.com slash official if you did feel inclined after listening to this week's fantastic episode. Um, you can join us in Discord either way. It's hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to join the conversation in there. And yeah, follow that Spotify playlist. It's the last one. Thanks for listening. I will be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.